If you are a person of extremes, emotions, moods, behaviors, addictions, obsessions, all or nothing thinking, this podcast is for you. We're going to get deep into healing from behavior patterns that disconnect us from our true selves. Welcome to the Middle Cath, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. I am your host, Kathy. Here we are in January 2024, and it feels like a great time to talk about healing wins and goals for the new year. So far, this podcast has covered two healing modalities, acupuncture and therapy, and five types of extreme behaviors, addictions, obsessions, scapegoating, avoiding confrontation, and pedestaling. As I've mentioned previously, some of the modalities I've tried are psychiatry, therapy, acupuncture, dietary changes, fitness, shamanic breathwork, spiritual healing, somato-respiratory integration, and more. I'm looking forward to releasing new episodes on modalities that may help you heal from your extreme behaviors too. Right now, I am seizing the timely New Year opportunity to share some of the results I've realized through healing work since my breakdown slash breakthrough five years ago. I hope that sharing these wins will make the modalities episodes to follow more relevant, applicable, and realistic for you in your healing journey. This is episode number 11, and according to mindbodygreen.com, the number 11 is a number of intuitive wisdom, new beginnings, and manifestation. Synchronistically, I have 11 wins to share with you. Each one is significant, and they are all interrelated. I am sharing them in the order that makes them easiest to explain. So, without further ado, let's dive in to the 11 wins. Win number one is waking up to reality. I was conditioned from birth to play the part of narcissistic supply to my mom, mean girlfriends, arrogant crushes, bully bosses, and countless others. It was profoundly destabilizing, unmasking many of the people I was close to who I thought I knew well as people who were actually high in covert narcissism and who I had supplied with my attention and esteem was like leaving the matrix. After a lifetime of overachieving without even knowing why, I finally awakened to my role as the golden child. I saw clearly how my family and indeed my golden child role also trapped my sibling in the scapegoat role. The propaganda about who we kids were in our roles, which do not reflect our real selves in any way, was powerful and pervasive. Someone in my life suggested that my mom's depression was a product of the scapegoat's problems, which included substance abuse. My head exploded at that moment, as it is now crystal clear to me that his problems were a direct result of our childhood emotional abuse and neglect by our parents. Of course, our parents' limitations were a product of their own childhood trauma, too. 
What happened to my mom that made her so controlling, emotionally abusive, and neglectful? What happened to my dad that he enabled her at the expense of their kids' emotional safety? From my perspective, considering their professional paths as a Catholic priest and a nun, I believe the Catholic Church played an important part in their experiences of narcissistic abuse. Having both attended 13 years of Catholic school myself and personally experiencing the ramifications of my parents' religious trauma, I do see the Catholic Church, at least in part, as a celibacy cult. After experiencing physical abuse by nuns in grade school when corporal punishment was still allowed, my dad was then sent to seminary boarding school two hours away from home at 14 years old. No eighth grader is capable of both committing to a life of celibacy, poverty, and obedience, and choosing to attend an all-boys boarding high school crawling with predators in both the faculty and student body. The seminary has been closed for 50 years, but the impact of the abuse that took place within it reverberates today. We'll never know the details of my mom's trauma, but the evidence of it was abundantly clear in her behavior. She wasn't happy, though she did a fine job faking happy externally. In turn, I had to fake happy myself with her at home, and I didn't even know I was doing it. I know how painful it is to have smiling depression and to be fully disconnected from one's own emotions while essentially treading water to get by both inside and outside the home. My mom and I were very different, but what we have in common is being parentified eldest daughters who had love-hate relationships with narcissistic mothers. Early in my awakening, I was terrified and a little paranoid about being surrounded by narcissists, and I fixated on unmasking them for my own safety. With further healing, I no longer need to psychoanalyze anyone to protect myself with my own boundaries. The problem wasn't the existence of bullying narcissists who are unlikely to ever change. The problem was that I made myself an easy target, a magnet for them because of my freeze-fawn response to incoming threats. Freeze-fawn was my only option in childhood with a highly controlling and intimidating mother. I'm in my 40s now, and my mom forgot me years ago due to young onset Alzheimer's. I'm a grown-ass woman, and while I no longer fawn like I used to, I am still working on overcoming my deeply ingrained freeze response to incoming threats, not by fighting, but by calmly and simply stating boundaries. I've learned the self-absorbed lack boundaries, and they expand infinitely into other people's boundaries until someone stops them. Those who don't say no get more and more bullying because they are the easiest targets. That used to be me, but not anymore. It ain't me, babe. I would not have awakened at the end of 2022 
if I had not been on leave for a workers' comp injury. The injury prompted a nutrition change that gave me a toehold into raising my self-worth, which prompted the awakening. Which brings me to win number two. Yes, I found the toehold into raising my rock-bottom low self-worth through nutrition. I know, I know, dietary information of any kind can be extremely irritating. And for years, I didn't want to hear about it either. I can't deny, however, how critical nutrition has been to healing my body, mind, and spirit. As I shared in episode three on acupuncture, I didn't know anything about nutrition and I wasn't interested. I didn't believe a radical dietary change would solve my life-threatening mood problems. After making the changes and feeling the benefits, however, I now believe in the powerful connection between the gut and brain. I've mentioned previously how annoying other people's food religions were to me. Back in 2019, I remember rolling my eyes at the gluten-free display at the grocery store. I clung to sugar as a relatively harmless vice, or so I thought, which I had to be allowed after I quit drinking when I started heavy-duty psych meds. I could never imagine being vegan, and I definitely didn't identify with some of the morally superior vegans I knew. Not all vegans, of course but enough that I was turned off by the whole idea. My younger self would be shocked, horrified, actually, to know I now follow a gluten-free, sugar-free, whole food, plant-based diet, with it, which is basically both vegan and unprocessed. Be careful what you hate. The significance of the dietary changes is not only about the nutrients themselves, which my body desperately needed. My self-absorbed mother ate little and rarely cooked, so we ate a ton of cereal and processed foods. Increasing my nutrition helped me see that I am actually deserving of nourishment. I am worth the effort of preparing food for myself. I also learned Spices don't just taste good, they are also packed with nutrients. Per the healthcentral.com article, 10 Spices with Benefits, spices come from parts of plants. They're aromatic leaves, fruits and seeds, roots and bulbs, and also bark in the case of cinnamon. Spices are loaded with antioxidants, vitamins, and phytochemicals, which may help prevent diabetes, obesity, cancer, cardiovascular diseases, and more. Despite the restrictions that seemed so extreme to me, I not only eat a much greater variety of foods than I used to in the past, when I often ate some combination of bread, cheese, and sugar with few vegetables, but after decades of cooking only out of obligation, without any enjoyment, and terrified of making mistakes, I can now actually cook for real. Instead of being crippled by perfectionism, intimidated by what I didn't know, and feeling like a failure if the yolks of my poached eggs weren't perfect, I can experiment. Learning to experiment in the first place is itself a huge win for this former perfectionist. 
Veggie chili and butternut squash curry, for example, are about experimentation, not following a recipe to the letter. I had never made curry before last year, and now I have a go-to butternut squash chickpea curry I love with loads of spices. I follow the recipe from keepingthepeas.com and use S&B Oriental Curry Powder, which has 17 spices in it. If you hate food prep, you could buy pre-cut butternut squash, diced onions, and Dorote Gardens brand frozen cubes of garlic and ginger. The only thing you'd have to chop is cilantro, if you want to add it. I believe introducing a great variety of nutrients both created balance in my body and actually fed me self-worth. By eating simple roasted vegetables at nearly every meal, which was both easy and low cost, I took in unprocessed foods that fed gut bacteria that had been starving for nutrients for decades. I discovered that roasting small sweet potatoes whole produced a caramelized syrup, a delightfully sweet and sugar-free treat. My cravings for refined sugar abated I escaped the swings of sugar highs and lows and increased fiber intake dramatically. I still crave sugar, of course, but when I do, I consider what emotional triggers or missing nutrients might be causing it. I can't eat in most restaurants, and for those who eat a standard American diet, I'm not easy to cook for because my lifestyle is admittedly fringe. No one would choose such restrictions for fun. And the only reason I did is because I wanted to heal a physical injury more quickly. Both my acupuncturist and therapist encouraged the switch to plant-based whole food for three years before I actually did it. I had already given up gluten in 2019 because it's inflammatory to the thyroid. And I tried over and over to kick sugar, but felt little beneficial impact. I wasn't motivated to try further restrictions for my brain until I injured my body. Even now, when the subject of nutrition or supplements comes up, my brain resists and dismisses the information at first. We are all bombarded with obnoxious dietary advice based on a lot of different opinions and questionable evidence, with people evangelizing the diet that works for them personally for whatever reason. That's nice for them, but they aren't me and they don't know what my body needs. With all the conflicting dietary advice out there, I followed my acupuncturist's advice and landed on Dr. Michael Greger as my food guru. Greger is the author of How Not to Die, and his website, nutritionfacts.org, is evidence-based and non-commercial, with no sponsors, ads, brand partnerships, or paid subscriptions. Food is deeply personal, emotional, and cultural. It's fundamental to our relationships and our very existence, clearly. <laughs> Being able to decide what we eat is essential to our autonomy and independence. But how much of what we eat is a conscious decision versus a compulsion like sugar addiction? Which brings me to win number three. Win number three is sugar addiction recovery. It's no mistake that my first full episode after the short intro episode is about addiction. In it, I talk about a range of addictions that I've struggled with, from achievement, people-pleasing, and praise, to sugar, cigarettes, and alcohol. 
While I believe my compulsion to supply the self-absorbed with attention and esteem is my most damaging addiction, sugar is a very close second. My therapist correctly identified the problem, and I refused to see it for three years. I could not kick the addiction without dramatically increasing nutrition, and I believe my lifelong sugar craving was due in part to a low-nutrition diet. A friend recommended a TED Talk, Sugar is Not a Treat, by Dr. Jody Stanislaw, a naturopathic doctor. The video has over 5 million views. It's a phrase I now think of all the time. If I receive sugary treats as a gift, I appreciate the gesture and then I throw it away. The point is for me to receive the intention and generosity of the gift, and I do. I also love myself enough now to refuse inflammatory foods and not care about wasting low-nutrition toxic food or the opinions of those who may judge my dietary choices. Marie Kondo, author of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up and star of the Netflix series Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, helped me give myself permission to discard what doesn't bring me joy. Her book helped me recognize the point of a gift is to receive the generosity behind it. Gifts don't have to be kept to be appreciated. And I choose to throw out sugar instead of passing the addictive chemicals along to someone else. I now prefer to give gifts of health rather than vice. I had to increase nutrition to quit the roller coaster of sugar highs and lows I was desensitized to and unaware of. This stabilized my mood and helped me slowly titrate off of all prescription medication, which brings me to win number four. Without the guidance of my acupuncturist, I would probably still be on prescription medication for both my thyroid and brain. I accept that I might find that I need to take prescription medication again someday for my thyroid or something else. And, full disclosure, after a year off of thyroid meds, my levels are now currently slightly out of range, though I am asymptomatic. The current level is equivalent to imbalances that occurred when I was on the medication, so it's hard for me to know if and how the medication helped me. In the past, I got blood tests every few months and based on that snapshot in time, adjusted medication up or down until the next test. Unlike my acupuncturist or functional medicine professionals, no endocrinologist ever mentioned lifestyle changes like avoiding inflammatory foods such as gluten and sugar or the connection between leaky gut and thyroid problems, which leads me to believe they simply lack knowledge or research in this area. I will absolutely resume medication if necessary, but I no longer blindly follow orders from doctors whose perspective and expertise are narrow and not holistic. I trust myself, and I'm taking time to see if I can stabilize the thyroid again with acupuncture and nutrition. This is a huge departure from where I was in 2019, when I relied on my obedient golden child conditioning to do exactly as my psychiatrist advised. I had an impression of irresponsible bipolar patients who were notorious for going off their meds because they missed the highs of euphoric mania or hypomania, and that wasn't going to be me. 
How dare they try to escape crippling suicidal depression by quitting meds and allowing the pleasure of euphoric mania to take hold of them, right? Well, I didn't know about the horrors of medication side effects or the acute misery of dysphoric mania, which is rage-filled and quite the opposite of euphoria. There was way more to the story of those bipolar people quitting meds than I realized. My initial strategy was to obey my way to health. It didn't work. I learned I had to take full ownership of my own health instead of simply following orders without researching side effects. Many people swear by their psych meds, and in no way do I endorse simply quitting meds suddenly with no support. I do recommend thinking critically and gravitating toward medical professionals who actually listen and care about you as an individual. Doctors may be experts in their discipline, but I'm the expert on me. Now that I've gradually titrated off the psych meds over the course of months and have been completely free of them now for several months, I do believe the psych meds hurt me more than helped me long term. I don't believe this podcast would exist if I were still on a mood stabilizer and antidepressant, let alone the lobotomy in a bottle for me that was the antipsychotic I took from 2019 to 2020. I learned that self-absorbed healers, be they doctors, therapists, or alternative healers, are not in a position to help me heal from narcissistic abuse trauma. The self-absorbed must elevate themselves above others to compensate for their hidden low self-worth. My actual healing was threatening to some of them as they needed me to remain the identified patient to retain their superiority as the healer. I took plenty of disrespect from these healers and supplied them with my esteem before realizing they could not help me with my root problem, trauma. Some of them did do some good, but I eventually outgrew them. I am healing despite their self-absorption and only choosing healers I trust. A narcissistic doctor isn't just arrogant. They are a lethal health risk. Knowing about the diagnosis they gave me doesn't mean they know anything at all about me or my body. They took credit for what worked in my healing and blamed me or my pathology for what didn't. The narcissism awakening is freeing me from healers who would happily keep me sick to prove my inferiority and dependence on them. I don't need the objective best doctor based on someone else's criteria. I need the best doctor for me. What does a narcissistic surgeon think about during your surgery? Themselves, of course. Every doctor advises eating right, whatever that means to them, and exercising. Whether they actually follow their own advice is another matter, of course. Their jobs are extremely demanding and stressful. Like many people, I hated exercise. I didn't value my life or my health enough to prioritize exercising for my own good. Thankfully, I found fitness through manual labor, which brings me to win number five. In 2021, I was desperate to get back to work after my 2019 breakdown 
and the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, but I couldn't possibly return to a job like the one I had before for several reasons. My brain wasn't the same, thanks to bipolar symptoms and medication side effects, and my mood swings were such that I wasn't confident I could hold down a job at all. My therapist recommended I look into the grocery business because the opportunities can be flexible and employees range in age from high school through post-retirement age. I took her advice and applied to stores near me. One replied to set up an interview and I was absolutely terrified to risk being evaluated in my weakened, low self-worth state. I believed that not getting the job would definitely validate my deep sense of worthlessness. It was a huge risk emotionally. After what I'd been through in my mental health journey, I had never been more vulnerable and afraid of a job interview. The intense level of fear I had to overcome to do it made this the highest stakes interview of my life, though the job itself was, quote unquote, just retail. The day of the interview, I walked into the store and immediately walked right out to return to my car and do box breathing exercises. In for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. When the hiring manager's first question was, tell me about yourself, I laughed out loud. In my 20s, I worked in career coaching for five years. I forgot about this extremely common interviewing question as it had been a good few years since I had last interviewed cold without a referral or warm introduction. I said, oh, I definitely should have had an answer ready for that question. In my last full-time job in a highly competitive industry, I had hidden the fact that I was a mother. I never mentioned my toddler because I didn't want to be mommy tracked. I wanted to be perceived as a hard worker who was focused on the job, not my personal life. In a big departure from my old identity, the first thing I said to the store hiring manager was, well, I'm a mom and I'm looking for work inside my child's school hours. I didn't mention my white collar office experience, but focused on the freelance work I had done more recently, which included telemarketing. He asked, what's the hardest thing about telemarketing? I struggled to come up with an answer because it truly wasn't hard, it was tedious. So I said, sounding convincingly fresh on each call, like I haven't repeated the same script hundreds of times. I got the job. Working at the grocery store is my work rehab. After working for companies that expected me to respond to email and join international conference calls at all hours of the day and night, I loved the clarity of being on the clock or off. Switching tasks every hour forced me to let go of perfectionism. If I didn't get to it, the next person would. Facing product means turning every item to face forward, and I found this task to be a relaxing outlet for my obsessiveness. (laughs) On weekend days when I could work eight hours, I found I wished I could do 10 or 12 hours because I had always escaped myself by over-focusing on work. For the first time in decades, I could not indulge my workaholic tendencies. The very best thing about the job is learning to love lifting. I have never lifted weights at a gym, and it sounds pretty boring and tedious, to be honest. I didn't have to think about lifting for work, and I'm now physically stronger than ever. 
When I found I could do full push-ups instead of putting my knees down, I was stunned. I helped a family member move to a new home. When she later needed help moving an extremely heavy table, the friend who gave it to her said, you know who's really strong? Kathy. It brings tears to my eyes to remember it because never in my life have I been known for physical strength. At a time when I was very insecure about my emotional strength due to mood swings, I could be confident in my physical strength. The combination of nutrition and fitness helped me feel strong in my body when my mind and mood were vulnerable. Physical strength increased self-confidence, self-worth, and stability in my body, which led to stability in my mind and spirit too. The good part is I don't have to carve out time for the gym to be strong because the job is so physical. But I still have work to do on enjoying movement for my own good. I haven't been to a live yoga class since before the pandemic, and I look forward to returning to this form of movement this year. My husband is an avid swimmer and sets a great example for our kids on the importance of making time for movement. I look forward to doing the same. The strength of body and mind that came with the first five wins led to healing what was my greatest challenge in life and which created so much suffering that I told my therapist in our first meeting at my lowest point that it was my number one problem. That problem was avoiding confrontation. Win number six is healing my confrontation phobia. In episode eight about avoiding confrontation, I described how I finally laid down a boundary with Timothy, a coworker who bullied and sexually harassed me and countless others and had been at it for years. I was a magnet for him because of my freeze-fawn response and inability to say no to him for an entire year. The day I confronted him, I went in ready. When he approached me for the last time, I said simply, I'd like you to leave me alone. I'm not kidding. It sounds so simple, and yet it was one of the most significant moments of my life. I had never, not ever, stood up to any of the countless bullies who tortured me for over four decades until that moment. And the feeling of finally overcoming my freeze-fawn response to defend myself and tell him to his face to go away was euphoric. What I didn't mention about this confrontation is that following it, in speaking with a few other coworkers, I discovered I was far from the only one he had bullied. I didn't anticipate it at all at the outset, but what evolved over the course of the following days was a true Me Too campaign. Word spread, and in just over a week, over 20 people confirmed he had bullied and harassed them for years. I was conditioned to be an obedient, people-pleasing doormat, and it is truly astonishing that it was I who ended up spearheading the movement to get him out. Younger me would not believe I could actually do it. It was a big risk, and I was prepared to lose friends or the approval of management or have to quit because of it, which was frightening. It worked, however, and we are all now free of his covert abuse. The best part about it is demonstrating to younger coworkers, particularly women in high school and college, 
that even with a work bully who's been up to the same antics for years and years, it is possible to create positive change. In win number four about quitting prescription medication, I mentioned my thyroid levels aren't exactly where I want them to be, though I don't have symptoms. I can't prove it, but I have stated before that I believe both my thyroid and psychiatric diagnoses are rooted in narcissistic abuse trauma. I suspect that the stressful experience of finally having to face the bully at work was so dysregulating that my thyroid hormones were once again thrown out of balance. I mentioned previously that it was mom transference that made me afraid to set boundaries with every covert narcissist since her. I have described the experience of being unable to speak up for myself as feeling like the little mermaid who gave up her voice in exchange for human legs to walk among people on land. I still feel that way when customers touch or grab me at work and I freeze. I feel my voice get automatically choked down before I can even consciously process what happened. The good news and bad news is I will undoubtedly get more chances to set boundaries with future customers who lack them. This job will teach me how to respond instead of freeze. Long before I ever had to deal with Timothy, Another covert narcissist was a source of great emotional distress for me for 20 years, Ethan. Which brings me to win number seven. Overcoming obsession is win number seven. I described my 20-year suppressed obsession with Ethan in episode four on obsessions. Younger me would be astonished to know my obsession actually had nothing to do with him. One of the greatest gifts from my therapist was the epiphany that I had transferred my self-absorbed mother onto Ethan. 20 years prior, I had been totally obsessed with getting his attention and approval because he ignored me exactly as my mom always had. After a couple years of him mostly ignoring me with some intermittent rewards, just like my slot machine mom, I gave up and burned the bridge. I suppressed my complicated and intense love-hate feelings for Ethan for 20 years and simply shelved my confusing and shameful experience of him. Though I hadn't connected with him in over a decade and hadn't seen him in about 15 years, the suppressed obsession exploded back into my life in my first hypomanic episode. It was terrifying to be flooded with intrusive thoughts about him after I thought I'd buried it for good. Turns out, suppressing it was not healing it. <laughs> Hypomania unearthed the obsession, and the great benefit of it all was finally seeing the connection between my mom's covert narcissism and his. I don't know how I would have seen the truth about my self-absorbed mother without experiencing my distressing obsession with Ethan. The depth of the obsession reflects the depth of my mom trauma. My therapist gets all the credit for enlightening me about the transference. It was a spiritual healer I connected with later on who helped me with additional insights. In working with her, I realized that to maintain his own ego, Ethan had to see himself as superior to me and that he likely believed he knew better than I did. Nope. My first therapist over 20 years ago had likened my pursuer-distancer relationship with Ethan to the Groucho Marx quote, I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. 
His hidden low self-worth meant that my interest in him proved I was deficient. His interest in me had decreased when I was interested and available and increased when I was disinterested and unavailable. By only wanting what they can't have, the self-absorbed protect themselves from vulnerability. Over 20 years ago, finally giving up on Ethan created the clarity and space for me to find the man I married. My husband and I work both on ourselves and our relationship. He is one of very few people in my life with whom I could have an emotional confrontation. He learned to self-differentiate early in life and is unthreatened by other people's emotional dysregulation, including mine. We learned from our experiences of each other about how to navigate conflict with empathy and strength instead of defensiveness. I have learned that confrontation is required for repair and non-confrontation prevents it. I am extremely grateful for my partner and it's not an exaggeration to say I owe him my life. He supported me through my breakdown and loves whatever version of me presents itself. It was his emotional capacity and resilience that helped me and our kids survive 2019 and the aftermath, which amazingly led to a true breakthrough. Which leads me to win number eight. Win number eight is overcoming suicidal ideation driven by my narrative of being a bad mother. As I've mentioned previously, feeling like a bad mother was a top driver of my low self-worth and suicidal ideation. I honestly believed my kids would be better off without me. I struggled to rein in my volcano of rage suppressed for decades before exploding in my breakdown. Being an angry, impatient, depressed, miserable mom made me feel like I was becoming my mother. It's hard to imagine anything more horrifying than becoming my emotionally abusive, self-absorbed, inflexible mother. But I didn't become her. I have narcissistic traits and tendencies like every human, but I'm not a covert narcissist. I actually have CPTSD from childhood trauma, and I was indeed very self-focused in my breakdown because I was in crisis. A helpful YouTube video on the difference between narcissism and CPTSD is titled, Are They Really a Narcissist? NPD versus CPTSD and Childhood Trauma by licensed independent clinical social worker Patrick Tehan. When I dance with my daughter, letting her lead while I do my best to copy her moves, and when I tickle wrestle my son, I relish every moment. I know how fleeting these joyful childhood moments are and that they will be grown in the blink of an eye. I imagine what it would be like for them to not have me in their lives forever. If I had ended my life, there is no way my children would have been able to understand that choice until adulthood, if ever. Instead of understanding the profound suffering from my depression and nearly fatal low self-worth, they likely would have believed there was something deficient about them. They might have believed they weren't lovable enough to prevent me leaving them, which couldn't be further from the truth.
from hopkinsmedicine.org. Losing a parent to suicide at an early age emerges as a catalyst for suicide and psychiatric disorders, says Holly Wilcox, PhD, a psychiatric epidemiologist at Hopkins Children's. The Child Mind Institute reports that a mother's suicide, especially, has an even more painful and potentially disturbing effect. Now that I see patterns of narcissistic abuse throughout my extended family, I see how the horrific trauma of losing me could have triggered an, and increased narcissism in my children, in addition to destroying my husband and causing so much pain for so many of my loved ones. Escaping my trauma would have caused trauma for many others and nothing good would have come from it. Not wanting to irreparably hurt my family was my sole motivation for staying alive. Like so many people who struggle with shame and isolation in their suicidal ideation, I didn't really want to die. I was suffering in the extreme and ran out of both hope and ideas for how to fix it. One of the greatest, most validating pieces of evidence of my healing is my child recently observing, unprompted, that I'm not as angry as I used to be. A healer who went through her own breakdown slash breakthrough shared that she felt overwhelmed by rage for about five years before surrendering to radical acceptance. I am finding myself on a similar path as I reach five years post-breakdown. Within the last couple of months, I took my kids on a day trip that I would not have been able to do just six months earlier. Planning and executing the trip on my own without my partner was more than I could manage after my breakdown. I also initiated our first family ice skating experience over the holidays, and though I haven't skated in decades, I loved joining my family on the ice. My child loved it so much, she wanted to return the following day. As my self-worth increases, so does my ability to accept and even forgive the people who hurt me the most. Many of them are self-absorbed, and I see now that they hurt me because of the limitations imposed on them by their own trauma. It doesn't excuse their transgressions, but it allows me to accept them for who they are and to remain no or low contact with them if I choose. It's not my place to force anyone else to awaken to the reality of narcissistic abuse. Those who cannot accept the fact that I'm a new person and no longer the fragile golden child I used to be are not people I choose to be close to anymore. Which brings me to win number nine. Shedding the golden child role is win number nine. Awakening to playing the part of the golden child was very destabilizing. At a basic level, I had trouble identifying my own feelings because negative emotions weren't allowed growing up. Suppressing and denying were my only tools back then. As a golden child, I didn't know who I was without achievement. I believed I was worth only as much as I could do or achieve, so losing my productivity drove my already low self-worth even lower. Losing the ability to not only achieve, but to do almost anything at all, made me feel so worthless that I lost the will to live. I clung to the golden child role because I believed it was who I really was. The opposite was true. I have so much more to offer the world 
than obedience, achievement, people-pleasing, and being liked. Praise is no substitute for love, not even close. It is a losing game to seek approval from the self-absorbed because they make a point of not giving it. It's unlikely they'll ever change, but I can and have. When I was younger, I used to think I didn't care what other people thought, but I was still completely destroyed by performance reviews, no matter how good they were, because I valued the opinion of authority figures over my own opinion of myself. Younger me would be shocked by the fact that I no longer care who doesn't like me. I now know the self-absorbed tear everyone else down no matter what, especially people who have what they don't. Empathy, emotional intelligence, social skills, and healthy relationships. No amount of people-pleasing could keep me safe. In fact, people-pleasing made me incredibly unsafe and vulnerable to others' opinions. I now know other people's opinions of me are none of my business anyway. Losing the golden child role was so destabilizing that I now have empathy for self-absorbed people who experience a narcissistic collapse. According to the choosingtherapy.com article, what is narcissistic collapse? It disrupts the narcissist's entire status quo. They can become hysterical, volatile, or rageful toward themselves or those around them. It is caused by losing narcissistic supply, meaning any source of validation, attention, or admiration. The article goes on to say depression and narcissism often go hand in hand and says a narcissist will lash out at you in any way they can or hurt themselves to cope with the shame. It is easier to be angry than deal with the uncomfortable emotions of embarrassment, rejection, or shame. Having been bullied by self-absorbed people all my life, it is tempting to feel some vindictiveness about the idea of narcissistic collapse. After all, they had it coming, right? After their relentless bullying and abuse, treating people as objects to get narcissistic supply. But having experienced so much self-loathing, suicidal ideation, and low self-worth myself, I really can only imagine how miserable it is to be them. I refuse to supply them myself anymore. It ain't me, babe. But I also find I can't enjoy the potential schadenfreude in the thought of the collapsed narcissist. Many golden children end up narcissists after all, and I don't know how I escaped falling prey to the misery of covert narcissism myself. I believe I have my kind, loving enabler dad to thank for being the attachment figure who did make me feel loved. He couldn't save me from becoming the golden child because he couldn't save himself from the same fate. He wasn't a self-absorbed covert narcissist like my mom, and I am lucky to be married to an empathetic partner. I have it better than my dad did, and I am grateful to be the person I am today. Increasing my self-love and self-worth increases my capacity for forgiveness. How can I hate my parents for making me the person I am today if I love who I am? Learning the golden child isn't real. It's a role. Taught me I am so much more than my achievements, projects, or productivity. No adult gets to dominate me without my consent anymore, no matter their title. 
I don't have to try to gain anyone else's approval or validation now that I have my own. I trust myself, and I now have a better understanding of what it means to be a human being versus a human doing. I would rather be seen for who I am than praised for who I'm not. In the process of losing my golden child overachiever identity, I gained a new, even more undesirable role, the identified patient. Shedding that role brings me to win number 10. The identified patient, or IP, is, according to Wikipedia, one family member in a dysfunctional family who is used as an expression of the family's authentic inner conflicts. Per the MedCircle.com article, the identified patient signs in recovery. Identified patients essentially simplify family distress. Instead of each family member recognizing their part in the system, everyone can redirect to one person as the problem. The article goes on to say, many identified patients have low self-esteem. Many of them also lack any real sense of worth or identity. Low self-esteem is a risk factor in numerous mental health conditions like mood, anxiety, eating, and substance abuse disorders. I certainly relate to the combination of low self-esteem, low self-worth, and mood and anxiety disorders. Growing up, I was not the IP, the scapegoat was. As the golden child, I overachieved and performed confidence, so much so that I even fooled myself. I was completely unaware of my own low self-worth. I mentioned in episode five on therapy that I learned the hard way that no therapist is better than a bad therapist. My couples therapist did add value in many ways until my healing accelerated after my awakening. He was helpful until my healing gained momentum. Instead of meeting me where I was in my recovery, I remained the same problem partner I had been when I started working with him years prior. Every session continued to be about fixing me, and I felt him trying to get me to follow the same healing path that worked for him personally. MedCircle.com says, Your family might not be ready to embrace your changes. They might be perfectly comfortable having you be the bad guy or broken child as a way to redeem themselves. I believe this dynamic occurred in therapy, with the therapist continuing to see me as the same broken, dysregulated person I was when I started. When I fired him, he erroneously took full credit for my awakening to narcissism and told me I'd never find a more qualified therapist for me than him. Ironically, it was his own self-absorbed, self-protective response to feeling shame and failure by being fired. Also ironically, to, maintain, to manage my emotions in that moment, I used a technique I learned from him. Staying in the observer instead of getting pulled into conflict. We switched places at that moment, with me in the observer and him being the dysregulated one on our last call. Leaving a therapist who was no longer a fit for me, like cutting off from psychiatry after titrating off the meds, and going no contact with my family of origin 
were all critically important steps toward taking charge of my health and healing. All of it increased my trust in self and my self-worth and enabled me to launch this podcast, which brings me to my 11th win, The Middle Calf. As I've mentioned before, this podcast is a healing exercise in itself. After trying in vain to get self-absorbed people to listen to me all my life, I no longer need their attention, approval, or validation. I don't compulsively seek out narcissists to supply anymore in the codependent attempt to escape my own self-loathing by focusing completely on them. Sadly, that temporary escape from myself and my own self-hatred just drove my self-worth lower, and supplying them made both me and them sicker. Now, I listen to me, and I gravitate toward the people who nourish me instead of deplete me. Five years ago, my 2019 self could never have anticipated that I would end up here, sharing 11 wins from my healing journey. Back then, I tried several medications that likely hurt more than helped, submitted to the directives of arrogant doctors who didn't really care about me, had negative experiences with self-absorbed therapists, and experienced near total failure in almost every area of my life, both personal and professional. It was excruciating, especially for a former golden child who was defined by achievement. I forgive myself for listening to the voice of my inner abuser all that time, which was really my critical mom's voice anyway, not mine. After wanting to lock up my inner child and never hear her crying again, I am both glad and relieved to report I love her and have so much compassion for her now. In my highest hypomanic episode in 2019, I came up with an idea that I believed would power a future motivational speaking career and put me on par with Tony Robbins. (laughs) Of course, that was as crazy as it sounded, but I see now how the idea evolved to become this podcast. At that time, I had arrived at newfound clarity about the global epidemic of low self-worth and decided I would start the self-worth revolution. Sadly, though I felt temporarily unstoppable in my hypomania, I had not actually achieved any level of genuine self-worth yet at that time, so it wasn't possible for me to lead a revolution on it. Now that I feel self-worth taking root and growing in my life, I am sharing my path to it, not evangelizing about the very thing I never knew I was missing in the first place. I don't promote this podcast, and I only share it one-on-one when it feels right. Please feel free to share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it. I hope this podcast inspires others, maybe you, to tell more stories about healing. Canadian writer Robin Sharma said, What you focus on grows, what you think about expands, and what you dwell upon determines your destiny. Focusing on healing from trauma, abuse, and illness is what moves us forward. My goal is to be a healing expander, 
to show the specific path I took and everything I tried along the way in the hope that it sparks ideas for you. Even though no one can follow anyone else's unique path exactly, I believe revisiting the path and unpacking what worked can help others heal themselves. Building on these wins, I will close with my healing goals for 2024. I am excited about 2024 because this year I will finally learn to respond instead of freeze. I will learn to enjoy movement for its own sake, for my own good instead of for work. I will take the improv class I registered for in 2019 when I ended up too depressed to go. I went to free open mic nights instead and took comfort being among depressed stand-up comedians. And finally, my obsession with narcissism will fade. I'll end with an audiobook recommendation that I found to be an excellent listen for this time of year. It is called The Mountain Is You, Transforming Self-Sabotage into Self-Mastery by Brianna Wiest. And it's included in Spotify Premium. The Bookie.app article, 30 Best The Mountain Is You Quotes, features the following great quotes. The mountain is not a destination, but a journey of self-discovery. Success is not measured by reaching the summit, but by the lessons learned along the way. Life's greatest lessons are often found in the moments of defeat. Brokenness can be a catalyst for strength and growth. Trust the process, for even the steepest paths lead to breathtaking views. And my favorite, love yourself unconditionally, for how can you conquer mountains if you don't believe you deserve to? I publish episodes when the timing feels right instead of on a schedule. Please follow me to be notified when new episodes go live. Cheers to a new year full of increased self-worth and self-love, and thanks for listening. Join me for the next episode of The Middle Calf, where we are healing from extremes and finding self-worth, self-love, self-compassion, and forgiveness. We are finding the middle path to a balanced life. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer on a future episode? contact me at askmiddlecath at gmail.com.